Coming up on this week's podcast. That's what I think that God is demonstrating here with the priests. He has them go before the people. He has them step into the dangerous places first. He has them lead them across the Jordan River. They stay before the first foot is stepped. And after the last person crosses, there they are in the Jordan River, holding up the devoted things of the Lord. Hear more during this week's message on our series of Joshua. Coming up after this. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. New Hope Chapel is located in Arnold, Maryland. You can find us on the web at www.newhopechapel.org. Now here's Justin Hibbard with today's message. Alright, so we are taking a look at Joshua chapter 3 today. Actually, we'll look at Joshua 3 and a little bit of 4 and Joshua chapter 5 as we talk about this triumph and transition. What was it about the people of Joshua, or the people of Israel at this time of Joshua, that made them succeed? And we'll look at some things. Because, you know, when we, talk, we talked about in Joshua chapter 1, we talked about God calling Joshua. And then in Joshua chapter 2, we saw that, that God redeemed Rahab this prostitute Gentile from the city of Jericho, and God put, her, put his hand on her and, and allowed a way of salvation for her. And here in Joshua chapter 3, the people of Israel are finally going to enter the promised land. You know, as I've been studying this book, it's like for me, it's kind of dragged on and on. It's like three weeks I've been studying. I'm like, when are they going to enter the promised land? When are they going to enter the promised land? And today we're finally talking. It's like it's like it's happening, you know? And it's so exciting that the people of Israel, you can sense, if I've been three weeks waiting to enter the promised land with Joshua, what was it like for 40 years for them to enter the promised land? So let's take a look at Joshua chapter 3. It says this, Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim, and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites and Hittites and Hivites and Perizzites and and Girgashites and Amorites and Jebusites. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and as soon as all the priests have carried who carried the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. 
Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan, while the water flowing down to the Sea of the, the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the, the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Well, what a significant event this must have been. And what a, an awe-shattering event. And I think to understand this, we should take a little bit of a look at the Jordan River. And I've asked Steve to help me out here. Because the Jordan River is, um, is quite a phenomenon. It is the lowest uh, flowing river in the world. And actually, we have a little Google Earth. There we go. To show us a little bit of the Jordan River. It is the lowest flowing river in, in, in the earth, on the earth. It starts way up in Mount Hermon in Syria and flows about 200 miles, 100 miles as the bird flies, but it's so windy that it flows, uh, it flows about 200 miles. And it, it flows from about 1,000 feet above sea level all the way down into the Sea of Galilee and keeps on going all the way down to the Salt Sea, which is 1,300 feet below sea level. So because of that drastic grade within 200 miles, it is, it is quite a river. Up in the northern part, near, above the Sea of Galilee, there are actually rapids. And as it, it, it carves its way through, uh, through the land of Israel and Jordan, it, uh, it has lots of gorges on either side. So when we think about the crossing of the Jordan River, and there's a picture of Jericho, and then we'll go to Gilgal, where the Israelites ended up after crossing the Jordan River. And then we can look at what they must have seen there as they were crossing. We're talking about a very significant event. It's not just, uh, it's not just a, a few people going across a stream. I think when I thought of this story, there's a, there's a little stream that flows behind my house. And it, it, on certain places, you can actually just jump over it. And that's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a river. Now, it's probably the shallow part of the river where the, the people of Israel crossed. But nonetheless, it was still an event. Not to mention the amount of people that had across this river. We know there are 40,000 fighting men. And if we think about their wives and their children, now we're in the hundreds of thousands. Some people have estimated that the people of Israel at this time were as much as one million. Think about a major evacuation going on in any major city here in the United States. What happens? You have traffic jams. People can't get out. Now imagine a people carrying their, their children and carrying uh, all of their possessions, going out, going across this river, going down and up gorges. Now this is quite an ordeal. Not to mention that God asked a man who was 96 years old at the time to lead the people of Jordan, or lead the people of Israel across the Jordan. So it is quite, it was quite an ordeal. And here they are, they're going to cross the Jordan River, and it's the time of the harvest, so the, the Jordan River is at flood stage. This is the springtime, March or April, depending on the year. And uh, it's actually right before Passover. So this is, this, is, this is an event. And that Jordan River had always been that barrier that kept the people of Israel out of Canaan. They always looked at Canaan, always the promised land, but there was this river between them and the promise that God had for them. 
And so God says to, so God says to Joshua, lead these people out of the land of wandering and into the land of promise. And he says to him very, very specifically in important words, he says, today I will begin to exalt you before all Israel. So they'll know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. That's important. Because Joshua had, had a sense of calling from the Lord, right? He had a sense of calling from Moses. We read at the end of Deuteronomy that, that Moses laid hands on Joshua and said, when I'm gone, you're it. And we know that the people of God, the Israelites, that they, they, they saw this leadership in Joshua and said, we will obey everything that you command. And if anyone doesn't obey, well, he'll be put to death. And then we see that God said to Joshua, lead these people across the Jordan River. So his calling is clear. But the question is, is God going to show up for Joshua like he did for Moses? Remember, Moses stood in front of the Red Sea and raised his hands and the sea split. Over and over again, the people of Israel saw the power of God exhibited through Moses. He had authority because he had God's hand on him. And the question I think Joshua wondered, and the question that we often all wonder, is, is God going to be there for us? When we take a stand for the Lord, is God going to show up? You know, I've often, whenever I have the chance to... Um, to speak with someone about the Lord. And I've had some really neat um, conversations in the past, I don't know, the past year or so. And, and in some ways, they, they start off very like, what church do you go to? And they start off that way. But very soon and very quickly, and you may have experienced this, they get into much deeper questions and much deeper issues. And I, I think I have to sw- flip the switch in my mind that this is, no more, this is no longer just me talking to them. This is me sharing the gospel with them. And so oftentimes I just pause and I, and I just say it in my mind. I say, Lord, please, please use me. Please speak through me. Don't let it be me because I'll stumble. But be, please speak to me and through me. And please open the hearts of this person that I'm engaging with. Because it, it, we're doing the work of God. We need the power of God to do it. We can't do it on our own. And I think that's a clear message that we get in the book of Joshua. But why doesn't God just say to Joshua, Joshua, go down to the river, raise your hands, and it'll split open for you? Well, I think there's a reason for that. God, at the time that Moses had uh, led the people to the edge of the Red Sea, well, they were just a random people. There was no organization to them. They were parts of different tribes and so forth, but God had not established an order for them. And in the desert, when they were wandering, God establishes a couple of things. He establishes that different tribes have different roles, like the Levites. And that the Levites were in charge of the devoted things of God. They were the priests. He, often, he also gives them an organized way of worshiping him, complete with laws, complete with symbols, and all of these different things that come about. And, and most importantly is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was to be cared for by the Levites. And if we remember, the Ark of the Covenant was a box and it was overlaid with gold. And inside the box were three important things. Uh, it, was, it was manna from the desert. It was Aaron's rod that had budded. And it was the Ten Commandments. These were the devoted things of God that were kept inside that special Ark. And that special Ark was only to be carried by the Levites, by the priests, in a special way. The Ark of the Covenant is very powerful. 
On the top were two cherubims with outstretched arms. And this was said to be where the mercy seat of God was. So once a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, which is actually this week coming up and we'll celebrate it next Sunday. It is a day of, of repentance, a day of atonement. And the priest once a year would enter into the most holy place of the tabernacle or later on the temple where he would bring a bowl of blood from a sacrifice and he would sprinkle that blood from the sacrifice on top of the mercy seat and repent for all Israel. It was a privileged position, but it was also a haunting position. The priest would wear bells around his, his garments and on, and have a rope tied to him that would go on the other side of the curtain. So there were some other Levites there listening for those bells to stop. And if they stopped for a long period of time, they knew that that priest had done something wrong and he was dead. And so they would drag him out from beneath the curtain. Quite a job, huh? <laughs> I wonder if they get hazard pay or <laughs> workman's comp for this. <laughs> but this was, this was the role of the priest. This is what he was to do. And we know about the power of the ark because we read about it later on, especially in the time of David. In 1 Samuel chapter 6, we read of a very interesting story. The Philistines, for whatever reason, always kind of wanted the ark. And they would do whatever it took to get that ark. And it always haunted them. And in 1 Samuel 6, we read of a story where they had gotten tumors because of the ark. And they weren't really sure if it was the ark or not that was causing the tumors. So they set up a series of litmus tests and eventually sent the ark down to Israel. Well, there was a city there, and the people, the ark stopped there, got wedged into a rock. They put it on a cart, and it got wedged to a rock. And there the people sacrificed the cows that had been carrying the ark and took the wood as their fuel from the cart. And there, there worshipped the Lord, because the, the ark of the covenant had come back to Israel. Well, 70 guys there decided it might be cool to uh, lift the lid up off the ark and see all of the things that were inside. And we know from a later movie why that, what happens next, right? From the story of Indiana Jones where the Nazis opened up the Ark of the Covenant and their faces all melted away. And, uh, but nonetheless, what a, what a tremendous power this ark was. Then later on in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, a chapter later, we read of a different story where David is carrying the, the, the ark on an ox cart and the oxen slip and Uzzah reaches out his hand to save the ark, but he touches it and he's zapped dead. And, and David gets angry at God. And I guess we could all say, God, why did you zap this guy dead who was just trying to save the ark? And the answer to that question is another question. Why was David carrying the ark on a cart when it was very clear that it was meant to be carried by the Levites in a very special way. And so here, nonetheless, here the Levites are instructed to carry the ark of God and carry it into the river. I and mean, what a tremendous thing that is because the ark of the covenant is the most prized possession. We might be afraid of, well, God, don't send your ark first because what if the Levites slip and what if the ark spills and what if all the contents flow down the river? But God does not seem to be concerned about that because he has made a way. You know, it's really interesting that we think our most prized possessions would stay in a safe place. But that's not the way it worked for Israel, right? When we go to war here today, that we send our troops, but we leave back our administrators and our president, and we leave back our vice president, we leave back our constitution, and we keep it all into a safe place. But not so with Israel. When they went to war, their king went, 
and the Ark of the Covenant especially went because they knew they could not win without the Lord's guidance, without his powerful presence there. And so the most devoted, special things would go to, uh, to war with them. And this is the case. God is demonstrating to us and to Israel that he's not a God that's just going to sit back. He's not a God that's just going to kind of watch from a distance. He is a God that goes before us, like Carl said. He's going to be the first one to step into the raging waters. He is going to be the first one to put his life on the line. I think that's uh, the, the message, the clear message from the gospel. That I am coming and that I will go through everything that you could possibly ever go through. He is a God that shares with us. And take a look at the Levites. Man, they had a quite a task to do. Here they are. They are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They carry it in front of the people. And Joshua was very clear. He says he doesn't want any screw-ups here. They've had enough screw-ups over the 40 years. He says stay 10,000. He says stay, stay 1,000 yards behind that Ark. That's half a mile. He says don't get within half a mile of that Ark. I don't want you to touch at it. It's like, it's like how I talk to my talk to my daughter. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to talk to her. Don't look at her. Don't even think about her. Right? <laughs> don't bother your sister. And that's what he's saying. he's saying. He's saying, I want you to stay away from that ark because I don't want you to screw things up. I don't want you to accidentally touch that thing and, and ruin it for everyone. So he says, stay back. And the priests are told to bring it out, parade it before the, the people. They want to make it very clear that this is not Joshua that's doing this miracle. This is God doing this miracle through Joshua and through the priests. And so what do they do? They step into that water and the water stops flowing. In 1920s, this was actually recorded, and actually it's been recorded a couple other times throughout the Middle Ages, but the latest one was in 1920s when there was an earthquake in in Israel, and there was a, a landslide. And the landslide dammed up the river and caused it to flood upstream, and the river stopped flowing for 22 hours. There it was recorded by a historian there in the 1920s. And you can imagine that if we're dealing with a a large amount of people, hundreds of thousands of people to cross the Jordan River, well, it's going to take some time. We're not talking about an hour or two or, you know, 20 minutes to cross this river. We're talking about hours, maybe 8, 10, 20, 22 hours possibly. It could have taken to get the people of Israel across that Jordan River with all of their kids and all of their possessions. It would take a long time. And now think about it this way. Look at those priests. What are they doing? They're standing there in the riverbed holding that ark for all of that time. Imagine how exhausting that could be. Imagine the Levite saying, I didn't sign up for this. Like I was just going to light some incense and, you know, and, and sing some songs and everything like that. But their job is physically demanding. It is a physically demanding job to lead the people and to be the first ones, the, the hazard pay, if you will. They're the first ones into that river. You know, and I think about this uh, passage, it becomes very clear what the Lord had designated for priests or pastors and elders of the church, is that, you know, a lot of times, I was talking with a woman this week, and she was kind of complaining about her particular denomination, some of the decisions that they were, the elders there were making, and she she used the phrase, the good old boys, and uh, and you get this picture of a sense of all these elders kind of sitting back in their cushy chairs, playing a game of poker and smoking a cigar and making this decision that would affect the, the life of the church. And I don't think that's really exactly the way that elders are supposed to be set up. 
We've been talking about this a lot among our leadership group and what we want to do as elders. And we're going to share that vision with you in a, in a meeting in a couple of, a couple of weeks, a couple of Sundays. But it is, a, it is a desire to come alongside and to pastor the church, to minister to each and every person, especially in Gary's absence, that we need to be the people that bring out the Lord to, to demonstrate his power, and we need to be people that stand with the congregation, that minister to them, that lift them up in prayer, even more so than we already have. And so that's what I think that God is demonstrating here with the priests. He has them go before the people. He has them step into the dangerous places first. He has them lead them across the Jordan River. They stay before the first foot is stepped, and after the last person crosses, there they are in the Jordan River, holding up the devoted things of the Lord. What What a marvelous picture that is, and what an exhausting position that must have been in that time. And so here the, is, here are the people of Israel, they cross the Jordan River. We don't know how long it took. Hours, I'm sure. Could have been 10, 20. Like I said, could have been 22 hours. A very significant event. And let me just say something about that. You know, a lot of people want to explain away the things of the Lord with natural phenomena. And they say, well, if we know that it happened by an earthquake, well, it means that it isn't from the Lord. And I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, Have you guys been watching news about Stephen Hawking? Stephen Hawking, the great physicist and astronomer of our day, probably the greatest mind that has ever ever lived at this time in, in explaining these astronomical principles. And he and another fellow wrote a book that said that God was not necessary for creation. I was watching the... um, an interview on MSNBC um, this week about it. And they were saying, it's not that we're saying God didn't create it. We're just saying that God isn't necessary to create it. In other words, that these natural phenomena can take place, and that explains how things are created or how things develop. But the reality of it is, is that Joshua knew beforehand exactly what was going to happen. He set the plan in motion by informing the, the Levites and and as soon as their, their feet touched the water, the waters receded. That is miraculous. We might say it's a coincidence that things coincide together like that. But how much more of a miracle is that? That God knew and planned exactly how this would take place. That at the very moment that this occurred, that that natural phenomenon would occur as well. What a miraculous event that God uses here to bring the people across the Jordan River. Carlene took a, she was telling me about this, she took a class at the University of Maryland on uh, biblical studies on, on, on the uh, Old Testament. And it was led by a secular Jewish uh, professor. And the first thing he said in class was, okay, when we're going to study the Bible, the first rule is, if it's a miracle, we are going dis- to disregard it and discount it because it can't possibly be true. And what a shame. What a shame to miss out on all the things God does miraculously in something that can't be explained and also in things that can be explained through phenomena and coincidences. I had a, a, a high school science prof- teacher named Mark Short, and he said this. He said, science was an acronym for seeing Christ in everything not clearly evident. Seeing Christ in everything not clearly evident. I still remember that acronym. Nonetheless, the people get across the Jordan River, and what do they do? Let's take a look at Joshua chapter 4, if you would, with me. 
And we'll start with verse 4 and just read a, a section of this. There are three things that the people of Israel do following this miraculous event and leading up into capturing um, Jericho. And, and one of them is here found in, in verse 4 of Joshua chapter 4. It says, So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according, uh, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them, that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded. And they took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the uh, tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told them, them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up, the, set up 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they, were, and they are there to this day. And taking a look at verse 21. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up Jordan before you, until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. You know, it's like, it's like children to ask questions. We've been... We, uh, are constantly teaching, especially Analia, about you know scripture and about about the Bible. Recently, she was we were all having dinner at my parents' house, and uh, Analia, who turns four today, actually, she she said my dad was trying to trip her up and said, "How many people or how many animals did Moses take on the ark?" And Analia, who was past her bedtime already, was visibly frustrated. And she was like, you know, making this noise and making this face like I've never seen before. And she said, not Moses. Moses wanted to take Israel across the Jordan River. It was Noah. But Moses died on a mountain. And Joshua took And I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Can't argue with this girl. So, anyways. But nonetheless, it is often children who ask the questions, what does this mean? I think about 9-11 and, and remembering what happened here. And you see all these signs that say, we will never forget or we will always remember and monuments that go up over time, uh, um, memorializing uh, certain events, especially in our history. Whether it's the Vietnam War or World War I or World War II or other ev events like the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And that they are to serve as a reminder for us of what happened at this significant time in the significant place of history. For me, I wasn't alive during Pearl Harbor, so I, I wasn't even alive during Vietnam. So I don't even I don't know these things firsthand. I don't have that experience that many of you have, remembering the stories, remembering the news reports, and all of the drama that went on. For me, I remember 9/11. Actually, I was living in Spain at the time, and I remember exactly the feelings that I felt. I remember the kind of chaos that went through my mind, as many of you do. But there are other children 
who weren't alive back in 2001 that don't know exactly what 9-11 was. And so in a sense, it is to us to teach them what that day signifies. But in reality, they will never experience it like we experienced it. They will never experience Pearl Harbor like you may have experienced or, or World War II or, some, or the bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki or the Vietnam War and all these other events that took place in our history. And that's why we have history class, to learn from our past so that we don't repeat them and so that we remember everything that shapes us as a country. The same is true when it comes to the Lord. It is our responsibility to share with our children and to raise them up and to create these events and these, these memorials that would share with them the importance of what God has done in our lives. And that's what God wanted to do here. He knew that this generation that's crossing the Jordan River was not the same generation that crossed the Red Sea. But they remember it because it had been put in their minds to remember in a sense, they didn't experience it firsthand. But here, God is demonstrating something very similar, very significant nonetheless. And he's saying, remember it by establishing this memorial. So that when your kids say, what do these stones mean? You tell them exactly what I have done today. The second thing that they do is found in Joshua chapter 5. We'll start at verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Harloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their, for, their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. There's another thing that God does here, and that is he is commanding them to be circumcised. This is the rated G picture. And uh, in fact, when we were, we were talking about the, uh, the sermon here, the sermon series of Joshua, Steve said, are you going to preach a sermon called the, the Mound of Foreskins? <laughs> I figured we would leave that, leave, that, leave that out of this series. But the reality is that this was a command by God, was to circumcise the, the, the Jewish males so that they would be identified and that they would be, they would be set apart, wholly in a sense, set apart from all other people, all other tribes and other nations. And here they are saying, it's so poetic for lack of a better term, that here they are in a new place, in the promised land, and they are making good on a covenant with God. And say, now that we are in this promised land, we need to live differently. We need to be devoted to the commandments of the Lord. I love the third thing that happens later on in Joshua 5. We read this starting on verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread, and roasted grain. 
The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites. But that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Well, what a beautiful picture we get. Here, the third thing that they do. First, they set up stones. Secondly, they're circumcised. And the third thing they do is they celebrate Passover. Remember, Passover was instituted the night before the 10th plague on Egypt. It was the killing of the firstborn, where the angel of death would go throughout the land of Egypt and execute the firstborn son of Egypt so that Pharaoh's heart would be turned and would have compassion on Israel and let them go. And those who had put the blood of the goat on their, on their doorposts would be saved. And that's why it's called Passover. And the Passover Seder is a, is a Seder that we have celebrated in this church. And we remember what God had done through Israel. And it's a very significant event. And I think it's so interesting that it, it occurred right before they left on their exodus. Marking the beginning of their freedom from slavery. And then they, 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 they celebrate it again when they enter the new land. When they enter the land of promise. Here they get to celebrate Passover anew. Forty years later, here they celebrate this event. Remembering as a memorial, a symbol of what God did in the land of Egypt. Passover you know, is much more complex than we celebrate here in our church and around uh, churches all throughout the world, we use one cup and one piece of bread. And that's significant because, as we may know, those four, there's four cups to the Passover meal. And the first one is the cup of the fruit of the vine. The second one is the cup of plagues, marking the ten plagues of Israel. The third cup is the cup of redemption. The fourth cup is the cup of praise. In a sense, that third cup has always kind of shifted in mentality, that we can always see redemption in different ways. For instance, the Israelites saw this as God redeeming them and bringing them out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the new land, into a new promise, a new era for them. In the sense of Joshua, the redemption is that finally they get to be in the new land. They cross the Jordan River. But then, 1,300 years later, well, Jesus comes and he shares this Passover meal with his closest followers. And he says, he takes the third cup, And he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, remember me. Again, the the focus is shifting. For for us, we, we look at that third cup and what we celebrate here, and that's why we're celebrating after the sermon today, to take a fresh look at what Jesus did in our lives. For us, it is it is part of a memorial of what is going on. You know, I think of these events and they are so interesting in how they all line up because they're for us. They're for us to remember exactly what God has done. You know, 1,300 years, another man by the name of Joshua, actually it was Yeshua, and we translate his name Jesus. Yeshua stepped into the Jordan River. He didn't step to cross over from the wilderness side into the promised land. He went from the promised land and he walked down into the Jordan River to meet with his cousin John and to be baptized and then to walk out. And the baptism that Jesus experiences here is, a, is, a, is the teaching of John was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And Jesus is demonstrating that the Jordan River was not a river to be worshipped like the Canaanites often did, worshipping the Jordan River for all of the things that it provided, but rather it was a hurdle to be crossed. The people of Joshua, the people of Israel, did not see the Jordan River as this awesome thing. It was that barrier that always kept them from the promise. And that is what Jesus is, is identifying with. I love how he has the same name as Joshua, meaning God saves, Yeshua. And how he goes to the Jordan River, the same place that Joshua came from. And, you know, you think about it, Jesus could have been baptized at anywhere, especially the Sea of Galilee, where he was from that region. But he chose to be baptized in the Jordan River to identify with the Jewish people and with the promise of God that this was a hurdle to be crossed. And what is he demonstrating? He's demonstrating that when we go under the water, when we're baptized, we are identifying with, we are dying to ourselves, and we are being raised in a new life, in a new way. And just as Joshua walked across that Jordan River, walked across that barrier, and came into the promised land, and then set up the monument, and then was circumcised, and then celebrated Passover. Very similar to what we do. Paul tells us that we should not be worried about the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. That we are to live as new creatures, as a new creation. That the old has gone and the new has come. When we accept Christ, we cross from death to life. We cross that Jordan River. And for me, you know, when I think about my experience in coming to the Lord... For so long, I looked across that river at the promised land, so to speak. I always looked from the outside and said, I want that. I want that. I want that. But that Jordan River, that sinful nature was like a wall that stood before me. And I was always butting my head with that. I was always fighting it. I didn't know how to cross it. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit moved me and the power of God moved in me. And he said, make this commitment. Walk across this Jordan River Don't look back. Don't live like you've lived in the past. Be a new man in a new place, in a place of promise. And I think all of us here that have accepted the Lord Jesus, we've experienced that same thing. And this morning, if you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus, let me just say, you know, there is no sweeter place to be than in the promised land of God. I think if you would have asked the Israelites, there were some that that served with Joshua who were killed on the promised land. They would have said to you, I'd rather die in the promised land than live like a king in the wilderness. David says a similar thing. He says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than have the wealth in, in a city of iniquity. Indeed, walking with God, there is nothing sweeter. And there's really no way it can be explained other than it's sweet. It's a land filled with milk and honey. It's not a perfect land. Lord knows we have our struggles. The Lord knows we continue to fight that sinful nature, just like Joshua would walk into the promised land and continue to fight to own the promised land. And that struggle would not continue and hasn't, and hasn't even stopped today. It has always continued. But the reality of it is, is that Jesus demonstrates for us. He, he, he stepped into the Jordan River He stepped out of his place in history that we might have redemption. And so I just want to invite you all this morning to contemplate that. We're going to celebrate communion here today, but think about what the Lord did for us, his redemption for us, that we might be 
saved, that we might have his life, that we might cross over from the wandering of sin and iniquity and hopelessness into new life. Hi, this is Justin Hibbard, worship pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing and an encouragement to you. Our church, New Hope Chapel, is located in Arnold, Maryland, just outside of Annapolis. So if you're ever in the area, please stop by and visit us. We'd love to have you. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. God bless. Thank you.